This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links. And to our patrons who support us directly at patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show. And I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. And in this episode, number 293... We're going to imagine a massive 3D landscape before us with intricately painted miniatures to depict every living, breathing organism within sight. But we're just going to imagine it, because this is an audio podcast, and this episode all about mapping and theater of the mind. And with us in this episode is none other than a few Tome Show veterans from behind the DM screen, as well as being the senior editor to the Tome Show podcast uh, shows, the man who schedules every post to the site, so every episode you've listened to uh, had, had, had his fingerprints on it, Sam Dillon, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and also from behind the DM screen, as well as the DM's deep dive, and the best D&D DMing blog in the cosmos, a man who loves to hear how awesome he is, it's Mike Shea! <laughs> Hello! And lastly, because we can't just have Mike, Sam, and I create an echo chamber, even if it's supervised by Tracy, we have the Tome Show's social media manager, he's a fat goblin game designer, whose products you find all <laughs> over the internet. Hello, Ishmael Alvarez! <laughs> Hello. Whoa, I, that, that's probably the, been the best way anyone's ever introduced me. We're taking a brief break from our in-depth examination of each class in D&D to chat about some other advice topics that have come up. Today, it's all about using maps versus theater of the mind in your game, and how to use each successfully and at the right time. This is a topic that started at Twitter between Sam and Mike, and then came up in behind the DM screen. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> It started on Twitter between Sam and Mike, then came up in behind the DM screen, became a recent episode about decluttering your D&D life, and now has evolved into this. See, that's, right. that, that's how it works. So all of that was that all of that conversation happened. Before we dig into uh, that topic of conversation, I want to thank all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash the tome show. It's a growing community of folks who support us and they are awesome. Plus, I sometimes try to give them a chance to help us decide the things that we're going to investigate on the show. I want to call out our new patron, Keith Bryan. Thank you for joining the community. I, of course, also want to thank all of our other great patrons, including, but not limited to, Stephen Robertson, Leonard Peltier, Jeremiah McCoy, Robert Aducci, Matt Bybor, Doug Palmer, and Mark Richmond. It's the most supportive community in podcasting, and thank you for being a part of it. So, now it's time to imagine our scenario or map it out. Before we get into our discussion of mapping versus theater of the mind and how to make each of them work and when and where and all of that. Uh, I think m- using maps is something that people who play D&D probably understand. And I think the uh, concept of the phrase theater of the mind is probably something that most people understand, but it's more likely to, to me that some people may not know what theater of the mind is. So who would like to tell us what theater of the mind is? I'll do it. Yeah, you will, Sam. (laughs) So, uh, way back in the initial origins of the game Dungeons & Dragons at the beginning, its its true origins were in miniature wargaming. So they had miniatures a lot. But when the actual Dungeons & Dragons part of the game was conceived, it was mostly happening in everybody's brain. So the dungeon master would describe a scenario and everybody sitting around the table wouldn't necessarily have maps and miniatures and big castles and all that stuff. Um, Those things were relegated to wargaming and miniatures gaming tables. And the role-playing game had uh, sketched maps overall, if anything. And when the dungeon master described a situation, possibly one of the players was drawing a map that would become known as the player's map so that they could find their way out if they got lost. Uh, but really, that's it. Everything is supposed to be happening in the player's heads, and it all depends on the dungeon master's really excellent description of what's going on. And 
would that be partially why there was a lot of read aloud text at the beginning? Yes. Exactly. Because if if there needs to be some specific information that's telegraphed, then the people writing adventure modules had to make sure that the dungeon master was most most likely to say those special words like uh, if you mention spider webs or mentioning you know an inch of water on the floor in that passage or mentioning extra crumbly cracks in a wall or something like that those things were clues to the players that they should have their PC investigate that or you know if you see spider webs you can Im imagine spiders are probably around. All right, so that's, that's theater of the mind. Uh, uh, Mike, tell us what mapping might look like. Well, I think we all know what, what it means to use a map in your game, but, but what kind of forms might that take? What, is, what does am, mapping look like? Yeah, I'm going to complicate the topic a little bit by talking about two different kinds of mapping that I think are relevant. Uh, so I probably I think in the three in the three point five days I I don't remember it so much in the second edition days uh, they started getting to uh, really focus on one inch gridded maps and I think there were like hex maps and things like that beforehand maybe somebody else here knows more of the history but I know it was right around the the third edition and three point five editions of D and D where I started to see gridded poster maps start to come out mostly the vinyl uh wet erase poster maps and people started to use those uh as a common way to map things out and every square uh and, you know it was a, a big large grid with one inch squares uh they're pretty common nowadays and every inch uh on the every inch square represented a five foot um a, a five foot area in 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 actual size uh and people would draw out large you know dungeons they would draw lots of hallways they would draw, draw big rooms and people would move their miniatures around based on each five foot square that they that they moved to and in fourth edition that really became the default way to play um and if you look at fourth edition mechanics the mechanics were were uh explained as um one inch squares like you know it, they would talk about like a burst five or a you know you can move six and what they meant is you could move six squares. Not they didn't they didn't break it down into feet. And in the fifth edition, we've moved back to five foot, uh, you know, a resolution of five feet squares. Mm. So now it'll say like a thirty foot or you know thirty foot area or a twenty foot radius. Um, but everything's in 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 you know everything's divisible by five to fit you know to theoretically to fit onto a grid. Um, there's another kind of mapping though, uh, which is the idea of abstract mapping. And this, I think, lots of people used in all the way back to first edition. Uh, and certainly, I, I know I used it in second edition. And I think it kind of went away in the third and fourth. And I, I, I believe it's coming back. And that's the idea that you draw things out. And you might have miniatures that represent uh, uh, relative positioning. But you don't really worry about the specific distances. Mm -hmm. So you don't say, like, my guy is 35 feet away from that orc. You just say, you know, they're this... You know, they're not they're not next to one another. They're they're further away. Um, so I, I think that some people call that uh, the zoning method. Okay. Like you've got you've got a really close zone. You've got a sort of yeah right intermediate yeah. zone, and then you've got a, these creatures are far away zone. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the game that um, sort of embraces this the most that I've seen is Thirteenth Age, where they they you can kind of have abstract distances between between groups and between characters. Uh, and you can still use a battle map and you just say they're close or they're far away or they're adjacent or engaged, I think they call it, um, mm -hmm. or they're grouped, right? And everything is yes. described in those terms. Mm. Numenera um, is the same way. Numenera is the same way. Fate has an idea called zones where if you, you know, I like to think about a zone is instead of a five foot square, you have a 50 foot square. <laughs> and you can move around from one square to another, but there's 50 feet between one square and another. So you might have a whole battle area that's two squares. So, so one thing I will say, because I've seen this come up recently in the, I think it was the fifth edition Facebook group, is that not all the squares are five feet. Mm -hmm. And that was like a huge issue for some people. Even today, like, I guess there was a map recently for a ship that came out. Oh, they use 10-foot squares instead? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so some people have been upset because of, they call it inconsistency in the scale. But the problem is, is like it can be really difficult to create a big ship that fits on a single page right. if you don't change the scale. And then the other thing is, totally, there totally were uh, hex maps, and they often were used more for area 
And those also would have a different scale, obviously. Right. Yeah, so yeah, hex maps were usually wilderness maps. Yeah, I was going right. to say, there's, diff- the, there's the other mapping as well. Um, and I think yeah, that's... the 10-foot square is actually the traditional previous, like, basic D&D and first edition use 10-foot squares in their maps. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, I think, and, it, and it's worth noting there's different kinds of maps. We're primarily focusing on combat maps. Yeah, so I was, I was thinking about battle maps. That's what I had Certainly, you're absolutely right. Yeah, exploration uh, like you see in, in Tomb of Annihilation, the new adventure, that's that's traditionally been done through Hex, or what was it, the, the Isle of Dread, I think maybe was the classic adventure that did that. Is that right, Sam? One of them, yeah. Yeah, so so that's a thing that happened. And and there's also world maps and setting maps, and, and you know, I, I will oftentimes sketch out the, a map of where my players are exploring in a dungeon, but that's not a combat map. So those are all things that can be done, yeah. and, and it, it, depending on your game, should be done. Um, and there's different ways of doing that. That's not necessarily what we're really talking about here, though. We're talking about what you do at, at combat to, for a fight to, to adjudicate all of that. Sam? In you know, in the earlier editions also, they, they did use hex maps in some cases for battles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's different because you have, you know, more sides than just four. So it's actually a completely different dynamic. But yes, you're, you're correct. We're talking about small-scale battle. Mike, you were, you were describing different ways of handling it. And so there's that more abstract way, and then there's the more concrete, like here's your grid and figure out, or hexes, or however you want to do it. Um, I would also say that there are different kinds of maps that could be used. And uh, I happen to, to know that you are a, a person who has used multiple different kinds of maps. So can you tell us about the different kinds of maps that you might use at your table? The different kinds of maps that I use at the table? Yeah. Man. So I, I, I have used everything from like a 3 by 5 note card with a pen to draw something to a five-story high, like in, in game, game story, not actual stories, uh, a Dwarven Forge castle that had five stories worth of stuff in it and, mm-hmm. you know, was an, an entire castle. So you can really go from, you know, relatively simple and, and pretty straightforward all the way up to incredibly elaborate light-up stuff and, and, you know, 3D terrain and, you know, all full painted miniatures and everything and everything in between. So yeah. uh, a, a lot of times you have... And there's like a lot of between. Maps. There's a lot in between, yeah. But I, I think probably where people... I, and I don't have data to back this up. I got data on some of this stuff, though. I, I know you do. I don't, <laughs> I don't have it. But um, one of the things I don't know, I, I would expect uh, that uh, a, a, a major area is the dry erase or wet erase battle map, either mm-hmm. a vinyl gridded map uh, that has nothing on it and you draw on it with wet erase markers uh, or Paizo makes a really good dry and, and now Wizards of the Coast also has one, a dry erase map that's also gridded and you can draw everything on that. And that I, I, you know, when I go to conventions and things like that, that seems to be most of what I see. Mm. Uh, and it's common and it's cheap, right? You can buy it for like 10 or 15 bucks. And it's, and it's ultimately, uh, I think the reason you see a lot of it is because it's really versatile. Like you can put whatever you need yeah. on it with a, with a marker. Uh, I think there was a long, there was a long history of, I think it was in the later days of Dragon Magazine that they would publish like poster size maps and, and some adventures came with them. And so, um, you know, I have like a file folder full of all these different maps that, that I could pull out for different encounters uh, uh, and to handle things like that. There's the dungeon tiles um, that, that came out during 4th edition and they recently announced what they were going to, to bring back and start publishing again, if I remember correctly. Um, and so that one was a, that was a, a fairly... Um, elaborate option that didn't require a lot of elaborateness, if that makes sense, right? You got a lot of the richness of of the the visuals, the detailed visuals, without having to um, pay for for you know a set of golf clubs worth of of uh, a Dwarven Forge, right? Yeah. So um, the the curious thing is, it, I, it seems like the everything really kind of took a right turn when Third Edition came out. And um, it's a little bit hazy for me because I was in my 20s and anybody who's close enough to their 20s knows that, what that means. But um, when 3rd Edition came out, they tried to really push uh, their game Chainmail, which was named for the original mm-hmm. D&D uh, rules or what have you before the, before the white box. But um, they, they tried to do like the pewter minis that you would paint and you would use them in this kind of war game or whatever. And that didn't really pan out. 
But the kind of the consequence of that was uh, then they started to make the plastic minis, the pre-painted ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really seemed to fit into the whole five or you know, one inch grid with the five foot squares and whatnot. Um, and that was really when at least I started to notice um, that miniatures and maps and everything just kind of started becoming in vogue. Um and so you just saw people going more towards like, okay, let's have minis, let's have this whole setup. It was, it, it was a turn away from what most people would call theater of the mind, towards like having some kind of a codified like, okay, well, I can have a giant dragon, and I can have a castle, and I can have terrain that makes sense uh, in a game like Dungeons and Dragons, where maybe before that would have been like, you know, your your uh, traditional hobby wargaming where it would have been like, you know, the pewter miniatures and it would have been revolutionary war or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that brings us that that would transition us nicely into a conversation about miniatures, which is a whole other side effect of mapping and, and how do you represent characters and, and creatures and what have you, except uh, Mike wants to talk about stats. Talk about stats. Um, I, so I, uh, about a year ago, I ran a survey for 5th edition Dungeon Masters. I, I it went to a whole bunch of different forums and a whole bunch of different areas. I ended up getting about, um, not about, I got exactly 6,600 responses to it. And one of the questions I asked was, what type of map did DMs use? This was specifically for 5th edition Dungeon Masters. Um, and 63% of them used 5-inch, uh, you know, five five foot gridded maps mm-hmm. uh 19% used abstract maps and 18% used theater of the mind and obviously there's a lot of you know i would i would i would round those up to mm-hmm. like somewhere between 60 20 and 20 is good um and in a recent uh talk with mike merles he he kind of threw you know we we were talking about theater of the mind and he kind of threw out 50 50 uh and he might have i don't know if he's got information that actually backs that up or not but that, that seems to be what he what he thinks that he thinks Fifty percent of play is done on a map, or that he yeah, thinks the, the, the fifty percent. I would uh, yeah. When we were talking about about fifty fifty percent were using theater of the mind, which I think he would probably group abstract mapping in there, okay. and then fifty percent use grid. Well, it's interesting the way you you stated that question too, because like if you asked me which one do I use, theater of the mind or mapping, I guess I have to say I use mapping, but I mostly use theater of the mind. But I do sometimes yeah, throw out a I, map, right? So I, I, yeah. Sorry. So the actual question was, what's your preferred combat type? Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, which one do you like the most? Was kind of what I was asking. Okay. Obviously, there's a lot of fuzz. You know, all sure. the survey, all the survey uh, um, uh, qualifiers have to be thrown in there. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Sam. Well, I, I was going to actually bounce off of what Ishmael said and and um, and talk about how that's a very interesting intersection between the the Dungeons and Dragons miniatures game, which came out, mm. you know, around third, you know, th- shortly after third edition. Dungeon Command. Well, that that yeah, was that, one, that yeah. was that, that was, was fourth edition. I'm talking oh, about okay. third edition. Oh yeah, yeah. Third, and the, third the edition game. actually, you know, the 3.5 edition of the game and, and third edition as well. They they all they kind of implied that you need a map and some kind of token to represent your character mm-hmm. specifically, and that was actually a change from any of the previous editions because mm-hmm. the previous editions did not expect it. They said you could if you want to. Often they just used like a pewter miniature to show like marching order, but it wasn't for combat. But in third edition, it was really encouraged. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then the whole intersection with miniatures came out and all that. And then in fourth edition, it was not only encouraged but built directly into the system. Mm-hmm. And that's where the end, you know, the sort of later products in third edition were going in that direction also because people enjoy doing that in, in, in to a great extent. So that's what they kept putting in their products. And then a fourth edition, as I said, it was written right into it. And fifth edition, they pulled back on that. However, in the DMG, there are plenty of options to to make it so that you can battle mat your entire, you know, every combat you have if you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's essentially two entire systems for it, right. if I recall. Right, but but it's but it's optional. It's not. It's it's closer to the beginnings of third edition or late second edition where they had the combat options books and all that where it's you can use it if you want but it's definitely not built into the system in the same way it was in fourth edition. Yeah, and and I mean 
I don't know, maybe the game evolved with with me, right, uh, as I grew, right? Because, like, I, I started with 2nd Edition, and I remember back in the day, we lo- largely played with Theater of the Mind. Every now and then we'd pull out a map or here or there, but we didn't really have the maps. We didn't really have the miniatures. We, we were representing things with, you know, quarters and nickels and whatever. Um, uh, or, I guess, pennies, because we were in high school and we were poor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can't afford them fancy quarters. Um, or if we could, we'd go to the arcade. Uh, but yeah, so, but, and I remember, you know, I oftentimes in my formative years of D and D playing thinking, man, it would be awesome if we had like real maps with like cool features on them. And, and if they were painted up and it was, you know, depicted the scene and if I had painted colored miniatures and man, that would be, that would be fantastic. Uh, and then like the industry evolved to give me the things I wanted to the point that it was almost required to to play the game. Uh, and now, as I've evolved sort of to a point where I wish I didn't have to take the time to do all of that, the game has evolved to a point where I don't have to take the time to do all of that. So I kind of feel like in this regard, anyway, um, the game the game and I have sort of have, have grown up together. So, so and, and Ishmael brought up the, the idea of miniatures, and we've kind of talked around the idea of miniatures here. One of the, the, I guess, consequences of using maps is that you need some way to represent what's on the map. The, the characters, the creatures, the, the monsters, the features, the obstacles, all of that stuff. Some of that can be drawn on the map, um, but some of it's, it's easier if it's you know, something you can move around because you don't want to draw on your map and then have to erase it all the time and redraw it and whatever. Uh, and so miniatures are one of the things that we talked about. And miniatures can come in m- multiple forms. Like I said, when I was young, it was coins uh, or unpainted pewter minis because we could buy stuff and we didn't have the... None of us were hobbyist enough to actually want to try our hand at painting anything. <laughs> um, you know, Now we've got the pre-painted plastic miniatures from WizKids, uh, both the older... Uh, well, I guess now they're from WizKids. The Wizards of the Coast used to publish the, or create them. Now WizKids makes them for both Pathfinder and um, D&D. Um, and so there's lots of pre-painted plastic mini options, uh, various sizes and depicting various things. And you can, you know, if you can go get older sets, you can get all, a lot of different options and cover a lot of different bases with those. Uh, but then there's also uh, the tokens that came out in fourth edition and there's different variations on that from different companies or whatever. So that's, that's an option, just little flat tokens. And, and uh, Mike likes to talk about his, his new uh, love, the, the, um, Flat, the flat uh, sort of uh, pawn sort of minis. Mike, yeah, tell us these about are, that. Right. So, um, and the, 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 that, so a shameless plug, I'm, I'm working with a company, and they have a, a curated set of flat plastic minis, and I do get a cut, just so everyone's aware. Um, and, and, and that yeah, company so a, is? Uh, Arc Knight Games. There you go. So they've, they've run a couple of different Kickstarters, and they have what I... The reason I went to them is I think they have the best... Um, I think they have the, the best, most price-efficient way to get a really good miniature on a table. Uh, one of the interesting things about miniatures is that I don't think anybody's found like the, the, optimal, um, the optimal business model for selling them, which is why you talked about how well, Wizards did it, and they did it for a while, and the prices of those went from, at one point, a quarter on the secondary market to now it's like two bucks on the secondary market. Uh, and you still had to buy random, you know, they went through random boxes and minis because that was the most efficient way to get a skew on the shelf, blah, blah, blah. And um, and then uh, Pathfinder Pawns was another very mm-hmm. popular one. These are stand-up miniatures that are made out of cardboard but sit in a plastic stand. Uh, and those are great, and people love them, but now they're out of print. And, you know, you look, and it's $195 for a box of that stuff. So it's really hard to, like, keep you know, keep an eye on what options are actually available for people today. But the reason I like the Arc Knight ones is they're super durable. They're beautiful. Um, they're so they're they're very much like the the, the Pathfinder pawns. They're they're like two point five D, right? They're they're flat, but they sit in a stand. Hmm. Uh, but they're made out of transparent, like a like a, a flexible transparent plastic. So when you put it on a table, all you see is the character. You don't have this white this large white border. And um, the set that I that I worked with Arc Knight on has I think a hundred like 165 minis. 167. What 167? I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yep. Yeah. 167 plus stands, um, and it fits in. It, it's a, you know I'm I'm it's like the size of a moleskin notebook. It is really small. Hmm. You know, so it's great for it's great for taking. I take it to cons, and every time I take it to a con and put them out, like people will come by and like, oh my god, what are those? So to me, it's the best current solution for getting a lot of miniatures for a reasonable price. 
Sorry for the advertisement. Yeah, no, 167 for what the whole set is sixty dollars yeah. for your set, right? 167 yeah. pieces for sixty dollars. That's that's less than fifty cents a, a mini, right? Yeah, that's that's currently uh, yeah, it's on sale right now. Uh, it's going to be I think eighty bucks when it 80, goes retail. Yeah. So that's that's about fifty cents of each. And I'm particularly fond of the 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 monster known as Tentacle Man. Yes, <laughs> you got to watch out for the IP. Right. There's no mind flayers, but there is a tentacle man. <laughs> yeah, and I know, I know, I sounded like an advertisement. The reason why is because I went to them because I love their stuff so much. I mean, yeah, like, you I, were I, you were talking to, about their product long before you made this deal. This is the first time I've heard of you having this deal with them, but you've been talking yeah. about them for months. So yeah, I, yeah, I love them. So, you know that that company makes maps too. Sorry, Ishmael didn't mean to crush no, no, no. you. But, um, the uh, that they make maps too, and I've I've ordered a lot of their products, and they're really high quality. All right, so Ishmael, not not Ishmael, just like uh, trying to you know <laughs> make a buck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I love miniatures. I own a, a bajillion of them, more than than is probably sane to do. Uh, and I I own pawns. I own like every variation of the miniatures. Not not the Arknight, but I want to own those uh, for sure. But um, I was very poor and played D anD D for a long time. I mean, I still am. But you know, uh, I have what I think is one of the most elegant solutions if you're willing to spend some time to uh, make little miniature uh, tokens. And you can buy what is called a one-inch hole punch um, mm. from like Amazon or Michaels or whatever. And either you can print out, like if you buy, let's say, the Paizo Pond PDF, you can print those out, punch out the holes, or you could even go and get like magazines from your hobby stores, because I know some of them give out free magazines, which is what I do. Uh, punch out pictures you like, and then take a glue stick and glue them onto the back of a bottle cap. And it's the perfect size for a miniature token. There you go. Yeah, yeah that, I, that, that was... No, I was going to say, I used to use a, a service, uh, it was, it was a, uh, a game developer called Precise Intermedia, PI Games, I think was it. Uh, the the name and they used to have the their uh, a, a customizable pond thing. So you'd be like, I need sixty zombies, and it would it would give you a customized PDF of sixty zombies. And the, but then you'd have to like cut them out and and you know tape them or whatever you needed to do to get, to make them work for your game. But but that was an option that I used years ago, and I I don't know that they still exist or not. But it was a thing. Mike, you want to say something? Yeah, just I I, I really like that idea uh, for the reason that you can almost always get exactly which monsters you need and as many of them as you need, which is the mm-hmm. big problem with miniatures. Like I, I literally ran a game last, I have, you know, close to 2000 miniatures, but I don't have three bone devils. I only have two <laughs> and they were fighting three, you know, I've, and it always happens to me. Right. I, I've done that a lot before because I have so many miniatures, but I don't have like, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the cat people that just came out in Volo's yeah, guide, tabaxi. Uh, the tabaxi. Tabaxis, yeah. yeah. So I don't have a tabaxi and one of my player characters in a recent game was a tabaxi. And I was like, I can't do anything about that. I can't go out and spend the $12 that it would take to get a tabaxi right now. Uh, but I can print something out. Uh, and additionally, uh, I play all over the place. And so it's just nice to have like a big old bag of bottle caps where I can just pull something out instead mm-hmm. of having to like lug something around and the ponds are similarly portable that, that they're not as uh it's not as hard to move them around as it is miniatures but they are more expensive well uh so when i first started um i did two things i created the dungeon tiles from the foam sheets you can get at craft stores mm-hmm. uh and then, but the other thing i did was use bananagrams for my minis because there's you know 26 different letters there you go <laughs> so <laughs> uh and, and that worked pretty well and it's like one bag that you can have and uh you don't have to worry that somebody's suddenly trying to remember the zombies really a skeleton or something like that uh and then the other thing too uh, as i found in the toy section as long as you don't care about scale as much there's can be some really cool stuff like i found pirates and skeletons uh, and some Egyptian stuff before, so that can be fun too. Right on. Uh, kind of like the army men, but different yeah. styles. I just wanted to um, try to move us away from the miniatures <laughs> discussion. I was going there um, next, but yeah, okay. Yeah, I think I think we um, there's a ton of options, and and um, 
we can make that a whole other episode if we want to. We could absolutely. Um, but but I'm really interested in in the actual topic, <laughs> which is uh, battle maps versus theater of the mind. Absolutely. So so let's talk about that then. Uh, so the next thing I want to talk about is is I think there's value in theater of the mind. I think there's value in using maps. So how do you know when to do what? Okay, so so that's where I'm at now. So so, because uh, sure. I, I don't think you have to be exclusive. Like I tend to run my games with both, um, and I've got some ideas about how I choose when to do what. But but I'm curious what you guys think. I I'm gonna say that um, unless you're completely 100% theater of the mind, uh, it's very likely that you're gonna want to do a boss battle and you're gonna want to do it with minis. Uh, and that might be where you're starting to pull out like your paper clips and using those for like all the the minions or whatever. But uh, I think that's when I see really that it matters the most because everything needs to be precise. And you don't have to obviously do that for boss battles, but that's when it kind of gets more dramatic and you want to have representation. And, and it's more challenging, you wanna, like, so you want to make sure that they know yeah. what's going on. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Mike, you want to add to that? Yeah, so I agree. I was, I was, I was going to say the same thing. That I think, I think, but I'll, I'll, I'll go the other direction on, on the, when, when, when is theater of mind a good option? Mm-hmm. And to me, it's always a good option when you don't know exactly where the story is going to go, and when uh, encounters aren't necessarily combat and not necessarily not combat. Um, you know, being able to to sweep in between or or switch between, uh, you know, an NPC interaction where you're talking to people and combat without having to pull out a map. Like, you know, the big joke is once you put that grid out there, the conversation's over, right? Right. But if you have theater of the mind as an option for combat, then it can really sweep in and out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I agree completely on the boss fight too. If you, if you, if on the (laughs) other hand, you know, they're going to be fighting a big boss, go ahead and go all out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sam, the, the other uh, time to use it is even if it's not a boss fight, but if you have an intricate, uh, sort of environment, you know, where there might be a lot of different environmental effects that the players or the PCs could could utilize in their in their actions. You know, uh, one of the great things about Fourth Edition uh, towards the end was they had all of these really awesome environmental effect sort of powers that you could you could trigger. And Fifth Edition has some of that too. And if you if you have an interesting location that you want to have the players you know interact with you know or the pcs interact with you can actually do go pretty far by having a map and it doesn't have to be the most intricate map with everything on it but just giving them a sort of visual you know idea of where certain things are because uh, you know some players are in general okay with theater of the mind but if something gets really intricate, they might have a difficult time visualizing it on their own. And so that map will really help. Yeah, so and I, th- I think there's an element here where the GM or the DM needs to think about their players as well. Yeah, I think what you, the scenario you're kind of describing as well is, is one where there's a problem-solving element to an obstacle or whatever, and being able to visualize it uh, is, is crucial to solving that problem, right? Mm-hmm. What that those fantastic locations or, or weird things yeah. going on? Uh, so I think kind of going along with with Sam thinks not only intricate, it can also be if um, you're in a situation like at some conventions on Sunday morning when people aren't necessarily performing at their best in terms of remembering things. Mm. Um, and also, theater of the mind in some ways requires some trust with the dm it i mean it doesn't have to but i i found the times when uh i we've i've been involved in theater of the mind and i hated it was when there wasn't that trust there and like the the dm kind of expected you to ask a lot of questions and even in the exact right way to get the answer uh and those times like it kind of fell for me right yeah and i used to i i i want to disagree with tracy okay disagree with tracy um she said it doesn't have to. I disagree. Yeah. It always I, has to. I I, yeah. I I agree with Sam. I think yeah. you absolutely have to trust a DM. Yeah. No, and, and, no, sure. But and I meant a DM like at a con- needs to deserve that trust. Sure, but like if I'm at a convention and it's earlier in the convention and I've advertised that we're going to do theater of the mind, they might not know me. Right. <laughs> uh, but, and so we don't have to have the built-up trust there. 
But no. yeah, they have to trust that I'm going to be a nice person and not screw them all the time. When I say the trust, I don't mean that you have to have a relationship coming in where everybody suddenly has spent months building up trust. What I mean is uh, the environment itself has to be, you know, the expectations have to be set right at the beginning. Here's what we're doing. And you have to trust that that DM is, is going to be fair and treat everybody equally. Mm-hmm. And you have to go in with that trust. If if you're questioning it any in any way, shape, or form, it's not going to be as fun, no matter what. Yeah, theater of the, theater of the mind requires a, a bit of a social contract, and and uh, it's pretty easy for a DM to to violate that social contract. So I think you have to be wary of it. I know I used to hate uh, running theater of the mind in my youth when I first started playing D anD D, and it was second edition, and that, and we almost exclusively did theater of the mind. But inevitably, every game of D anD D would turn into a fight between me and the dungeon master because I was usually a player because I envisioned a scenario one way and he envisioned it another way and he, you know, he blasted me with that that magical array that I'm like, but I was hiding behind the stalactite. You shouldn't have been able to even hit me. Ah, you know, because, um, <laughs> you know, there was just a disagreement about about how things worked. Maps solve that, right? Um, now I've gone the other way. Now I've, I've come back around, but that's because I'm, maybe it's because I'm DMing, right? So my vision is key, but I also have that, that attitude as a DM running theater of the mind that I, you have to sort of be eager to say yes. If anytime a player says, can I do this thing? My answer is almost always yes. If I can at all justify it being, being the case, right? Um, so, so try to say yes as a DM as often as humanly possible in order to, to build that trust in theater of the mind that, oh, you envisioned it working that way. Yeah, absolutely. You can do that. You know, go ahead and roll your dice, whatever you need to do. Uh, I, I tend to like theater of the mind more than mapping myself. And the reason isn't just, um, being flexible in the narrative piece that Mike talked about and, and whatever. Um, it, it has a lot to do with time. Like I got sick of, of, how little I was getting done in fourth edition because I spent so much time developing and building maps and moving miniatures around on maps and whatever, whereas I can run two or three combats, Theater of the Mind, at the time I used to do one uh, fourth edition combat using maps. Uh, so I will, my system now is that every game session, we and I run six-hour game sessions, I will draw out one map for a major encounter or a tricky encounter like Sam described, and the rest of it is sort of assumed I'm just going to do Theater of the Mind because if I didn't draw it out ahead of time, I'm not going to draw it out in the middle of the game. I'm not taking the time for that. We have a game to play, and and the game doesn't involve everybody sitting around watching me draw maps. Um, so that's sort of my my way of handling it, right? I put maps out every now and then. And hey, last session we played, and, and those who listen to Behind the DM Screen may have already heard this. Last session we played, the one map I drew out was the the air node in the uh, in the Temple of Elem- oh, not the what's it called. Uh, Prince of the Apocalypse adventure, right? And the air note is there. And I've got Pazuzu sitting there trying to tear open reality. Uh, and, and that was the map I drew out. Because I'm like, we're going to start with a map combat. And it's going to be a big epic boss fight. And they totally just said, hey, Pazuzu, here's the thing you want. Go ahead and leave. And let him leave. Like, so so I, I managed to... Uh, I managed to avoid the the conundrum that Mike talked about of well once you draw the map the the negotiations over and I drew the map and they were on the map and then they still talked their way out of it so I commend my players for not having that attitude of once the map's out it's it's time to roll initiative so good for them I just okay. want to say uh, I wasn't I was being kind of facetious when I said I wanted to disagree with Tracy so oh. <laughs> I wasn't trying to like pile on and say oh Tracy said something wrong I just. Uh, I want to just make clear that I uh, I understand what Tracy's saying and I agree right. with it and I just wanted to expand on it. I thought more she was totally so, more wrong. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, no. I mean, obviously, yeah. the, the thing we're hitting on is trust. She right. she's right. Yeah. we need yeah. trust. And I was just going to kind of expand on that too, to, and and say that uh, yeah, trust is is important whether or not you're using minis. That's that's a whole other episode probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, just as kind of a counterpoint to the idea that a DM could probably um, lose trust easily, I think that it's more so about the kind of mindset that the players are in. I've seen too many players who are like, "All right, I don't care if I catch three of my friends." in that fireball if i can just get that one extra orc in my radius uh and so there's nothing necessarily wrong with that style of gameplay if that's what everybody's agreed on but uh i think if you're gonna wean them wean your players away from that kind of mindset of like let's get every tactical advantage we can just be 
um, upfront about it and say, no, we're just going to do theater of the mind. And some of these spells are going to work differently than you're used to. And just know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and make you ineffective, but you might only catch half the orcs instead of like 75% of the orcs in your fireball or what have you. Mm. So yeah, uh, kind of, you know, jumping back to the whole conversation of trust and, and specifically into that idea of like, how do you decide things like how many dudes you can fit into a fireball or whatever, um, I think that some guidelines up front to that, you know, that are sort of agreed upon before the situations come up in general, uh, particularly if you're with a group that you're going to be, you know, with for some time. I mean, I guess you could also do it for, you know, one shot groups and things like that. Um, I think it helps sort of on top of reinforcing the idea that the DM is trying to help players accomplish what they want to accomplish. You can also say things like, with a fireball or something that's the size of a fireball, you should always expect to be able to hit four people. And if you want to hit six people, you might have to put a friend in there too, you know, or a lightning bolt should generally be able to hit three people. And if you, if you kind of make these agreements up front so that, you know, everyone understands like, Oh, if I throw a lightning bolt, I'll be able to hit three, three people. And then you don't have to worry about lining them all up in a row. And you don't have to come up with some convoluted ham fisted way of describing how they're all lined up in a row. You could just say, you throw a lightning bolt, you can hit, you know, yeah, go ahead. Hit hit whatever three guys you want. You know, we'll assume you can line your way up so you can th- hit three people. I think those agreements up front can can give players, uh, you know, that makes them a little bit more likely to to trust that their intentions are going to be met in in theater of the mind, which I think is is sort of the ultimate goal. Hmm. Okay, so we've kind of been doing all of my last bunch of questions here simultaneously. I was going to talk about when to do theater of the mind and how to do it well, and then when to do mapping and how to do it well. And we're kind of talking about all of that. So I want to know, are there any other sort of tips and tricks to making theater of the mind work? And then we'll talk about tips and tricks to making mapping work. I have, I have tips. Tips. Michael. (laughs) I've been spending a lot of time thinking about theater of the mind. I think it is actually the one major gap that exists in 5e because Again, mm. of roughly 40, you know, 40 to 50% of people are using some variant of non-gridded combat. And there's two versions of gridded combat guidelines in the DMG and about a paragraph of text that talks about how to do theater of the mind. And, you know, with all the streaming that's going on, a lot more, we're, we're starting to see a lot more people do theater of the mind in streaming. So I, I think it's something I wish Wizards would address in like a UA article saying like, you know, here are some ways that we treat theater of the mind. You know, here's some basic guidelines. But I think they understand that that's a really group independent thing, that we're all going to sort of have our own way to handle it at our table. And it's probably better to be left alone rather than here's some new guidelines and everyone hates them. Um, but my, my, my biggest one, and I, I, I think it kind of falls back. If you actually read the player's handbook, it describes like, what's the basic sequence of events that occurs in any interaction in D and D. And then I've refined that down to how would you do that for, for theater of the mind? And it's the DM describes the situation, the player describes their intent and the DM helps them accomplish it. Right. And it's the hardest part for me in running a lot of theater of the mind. I've, you know, I did a whole 4E thing and I did gridded, you know, gridded combat for many years. And now I'm doing a lot more theater of the mind. And the hardest part for me is to get players to not say things like, how far away is that guy? And instead say things like, I want to hit as many people as I can with a fireball. Right. Or I want to try to hit the boss and anybody else that I can. And and some of my some some of the people in some of my groups are really good at that. They say, like, I want to hit I want to throw a chain lightning and I'd love to hit all four. And I go done, you know, like, mm-hmm. great, let's let's do it. And um, but that that idea of trying to get players to describe their intentions, can I you know, I want to hit a guy instead of saying, like, can I? It's not permissive. Right. We don't want to get in this thing where they don't feel like they can do anything unless they get permission from the DM, which is also a hard thing to break past. But that idea of, uh, I want to, oh, I want to hit that guy with an Eldritch Blast. Well, we're not going to worry about whether or not the guy is 150 feet away or, well, or 50 feet away to 75 feet away. Of course, hit him with an Eldritch Blast. Um, so I think that that, you know, keeping that sequence in mind, that, that main thing of, you know, and, and this is a constant rotation through combat. The DM describes what's going on. You know, there are two ogres that, that are in front of you, and then there's a river of molten lava, and there's a wizard on the other side who's getting ready to throw a fireball at you. What do you want to do? Right. Oh, well, I want to I want to hit, you know, one ogre and the wizard with a lightning bolt. No problem. Done. Right. I think that that's really how I've seen theater of the mind work work really well. Okay. Um, to to sort of springboard off of that, part of it is 
if you're in a, a newer group and you're trying to sort of train your players, uh, you know, in that sounds bad, training your players, but uh, <laughs> sort of if you're trying to teach your players about your own habits and, and your own DMing style, um, the, the best way to do it is to be really try to be really consistent. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is um, like when when I'm going through and, and if we're doing initiative and um, and I I say, okay, you know, uh, Garrett's up. Okay, I don't say, okay, Garrett, it's your turn. I say, okay, Garrett, what would you like to do? What, do you, what are you thinking about? What, where, where do you want to be on, on here, you know, in this situation? Uh, in a way to get them to narratively respond to me, to tell me what they want to do. And not, even if I have a map out there, not even looking at, okay, well, how many squares is that? And how far is that? And here's, where's that? And what's going on? But to get a, a more co of a conversation going where they tell me what they want to accomplish. And I say, okay, here, how about this, you know, and, and then it's more of a negotiation between let's, you know, let's both sort of agree on the reality of what we're talking about just in this little tiny niche part of the game right now, this second. And then when the next person's turn comes up, I don't say, okay, Honora, it's your turn. I say, okay, Honora has a chance to sort of see what's going on. What would you like to do? And then I go from there and I, and I, and I always ask it that way. What would you like to do? Because that pulls them out of, oh, it's your turn. We have to roll dice and it's a game and, and it puts them more in uh, a creative mindset for my particular players. Now, any other DM might have a different turn of phrase or a different type of consistency that they use mm -hmm. when they try to keep things on track and try to keep a pacing and at the same time try to get their players to be you know, innovative and creative, whether there's a map or not those things matter. You might do it a slightly differently if there's a map versus if there's not a map, but being consistent about how you do that is important. Three really quick things. Um, so one, because I feel like Wizards uh, hasn't really addressed good theater of the mind guidelines and because I wanted actually you know, something I could hand to people and say, this is this is kind of how I want to run combat. Uh, I did put together a single page PDF called D&D uh, &D 5e Guide to Narrative Combat. It's available on Sly Flourish. And it's one page and it describes a lot of the things we were talking about and kind of covers the main, you know, covers the main the main stuff. Um, uh, piling on with Sam, uh, that idea, the only thing I add to the what do you do is, and I'm trying to get better at this, I'm not particularly good, uh, is describing the current event every turn. So, you know, you know, uh, uh, Rilled, it's your turn. Uh, the Archmage just blasted everybody with a chain lightning and two of your friends just dropped from it. The Horned Devil picked one of them up and is about to bash them against the wall till they're dead. What do you want to do? Right. And that it puts urgency on it. But it also if they're not paying attention and because they don't have a map, they can't see it. Now they go, ah, whoa, mm -hmm. OK, I better do something about this. That's a good idea. Um, and then the last thing, a, a real advantage for me, one of the reasons I, I'm really resonating with narrative combat and, and you know, theater of the mind combat so much is I look at the covers of the books that we're buying and they have these like heroes jumping across lava pits, getting ready to slash fire giants in the face with a sword or, you know, liches just hurling lightning bolts while everybody's, you know, rocks are falling from the sky. And then I look at like a grid and miniatures and it's like, that's nothing like what's on the cover, hmm. you know? But when I do theater of the mind, I can say things like the horn devil, you know, flies in the air and is about to throw you into a big pool of lava. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. You know, so you can have these really epic, you know, like, like we are eight years old again, you know, or 12 mm -hmm. years old. You can come up with these really epic descriptions of things that you just can't represent with, you know, ignore the fact that I only have two horn devils because one of them is actually a, you know, bone devil. <laughs> I don't have enough. And, build it, and building that trust that we've been talking about, uh, I think, helps bring that even further, right? I mean, uh, it, allow, yeah. it allows you to pull that off. Instead of, instead of the lack of a map becoming a source, uh, a source spot or a source of a fight, it becomes an opportunity for, right. for going over the top and going crazy and having fun. Right. And I and I I'll, I swear I'll shut up. I I find that uh, I become a lot less competitive when running narrative combat. Mm -hmm. Like I'm on their side when we're running narrative combat. Mm -hmm. But when we put maps in a mini out, I start to feel like uh, I I start to feel like um, uh, you know now we're we're playing chess again. So I know just my own attitude going in is when it's narrative combat. I I, I really switch to a I want them to be cool. 
Mm. And when it's, you know, when we get really tactical, that's when I'm thinking really tactical instead of thinking about awesome stuff they can do. And and now I'll shut up. Thank uh-huh, you. Sure you will. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Until the next time you decide to talk, uh, which will be almost any minute now, because unless somebody has something else to talk about in terms of tips on theater of the mind, I don't have anything to add because you guys said everything I want to say. Uh, I want to talk about tips on maps. Uh, so if you want to pull off maps, if you want to use it, pull out the grid or, or put out your Dwarven Forge or whatever it is you're going to do, your, your dungeon tiles, which are coming back, uh, and all of that, uh, how do you do that well? Uh, I have tips if you want me to go first, but I feel like Mike and I have been dominating the conversation. <laughs> uh, as was expected. Tracy, how do you do maps? Uh, not great. <laughs> not very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot less to say about maps. <laughs> No, no, I, I actually tend to use the um, the blank grid maps with the and the dry erase markers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can even use the wet erase or permanent, depending. Uh, those are typically how I do them, and then we just draw in the details, and when people event, invent things, I, I make sure they get on there so that uh, folks know that they can use it as well. Right on. So, um, I mean, I... I just uh use uh maps just as normal i put the minis on there um and i try to use them more as a guideline like i i use minis i use maps i use the grid and everything but i'll fudge it every so often like you know if if somebody just can't quite reach the kobolds and do a burning hands i'll be like uh you get all three of them anyways or something like that like i try and play it a little bit faster and loose um just so that people are having a good time nobody's getting too focused on the minutiae of like where they are on the map. Um, and so it's like, it's gridded, but in a very loose definition. Mm. And so, um, I mean, it just dep- like, I think my tip would be just figure out what you want to do. Do you want it to be more like a board game where everything is codified and everything is just so, and you have to like count each step or do you want it to be kind of like, Oh, you know, let people do what they will and, you know, trust your players enough to to kind of let them push the envelope and and you know them trust you to to know that you're going to run a fair combat. So I I have two or three things. Um, the first one is is very similar to what Ishmael said. Is I I use maps quite a bit, but not for the purposes of showing exact distances, but more for giving an idea of the ambiance of the area, and I. I don't use miniatures. I use pawns and I or tokens, and I have the players. You know, when if if they start into if they start trying, you know, getting into a pattern where they say, "Well, this is four squares. Can I move over there?" I say, "Ignore the squares. We don't care about squares. It's the the map just has a a, a grid on it." accidentally you know like just ignore that your characters can't see that so ignore that tell me what you want to do and it only took about three sessions to get them to really look at the map as a tool rather than the exact vision of what exactly is going on in this area right now here and more as a okay that's just meant to help me and and not to uh and not to really rule sort of my my own personal view of what's going on here in this situation in my brain because the idea of theater of the mind is all in the brain and if you're going to do like a hybrid 50 50 which is kind of what i do although i use maps quite a bit you have to teach the players how to do that and you have to be a little patient at first when you're doing that i just i wanted to add real quick just to kind of go on all of that uh is that uh usually i won't use a map if a combat isn't going to be uh, especially important, like if it's a random encounter, if it's just like bandits on on the road or whatever, or if I think that it can just go without. Um, typically, like we were saying, there's sometimes where it's there's things on the tur- on the uh, on the map that are important, like uh, gouts of flame coming out, and so people want to avoid that or use that to their advantage. Um, for me, the biggest thing is either if it's in a occupied building. Or if there are hostages, then I have to have a map because then suddenly people are asking questions like, "Where are the hostages? Can I shoot? Can I shoot the bad guys without shooting the hostages? Mm-hmm. How do I get the best vantage point for attacking them and saving?" And so then it starts to become com- almost like a, a bank heist, and they they have to think about it with visual representation, or, or they'll just bug me to death about mm. all the details. Okay, 
I just wanted to add something to to, to, to Sam's statement that um, one way I have found to get people to switch away from looking at the grid to starting to think in a more this more abstract fashion of just you know just describe what you want to do and you know ask you know or say I want to rush that guy and hit him is when they get like an extra five or ten feet of movement out of it. So if they're like a dwarf fighter and they're six squares away or seven squares away and they're, you know, they will very quickly be happy with the, can I charge that guy? And you're like, sure. And they realize like, if I was on a grid, I'd have gotten screwed. But because I'm, (laughs) you know, because you're letting me do that, I actually get to do a lot more stuff. Mm. The fact that Mm -hmm. they're getting more than they would, you know, that, that, you know, I've, I've certainly seen people that are much happier to throw the grid away, particularly when they know they're getting like a one square advantage out of it. Yeah, although I, there's a lot of like using narrative methods in a in a map sort of conversation that's going on. I I, I want to point out there's value and fun in using the map and the rules as intended and 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 being a little bit of a of a stickler for some of that. Uh, you know, not too. I mean, not a jerk about it or whatever. But like the one of the main reasons I went to u- doing at least one map per game session was because. I had players who weren't having as much fun. They enjoyed the tactical sort of uh, war gamey sort of element of pulling out the map every now and then. That's part of their enjoyment of the game is figuring out that puzzle of, of what are the best tactics. So so don't com- necessarily completely throw the, the baby out with the bathwater here. Uh, I think some people, that's their game and they have fun with that. So sure. Yeah, and that's actually, I was going to bring up um, something about like if you're going to play a game heavily that relies on maps because you asked about, you know, pros and cons and mm-hmm. how, how what are some tips or whatever. So uh, because I use maps a lot, sometimes I do have a map where I want I need I need it because of the situation to be, you know, to to hew to the to the cubes, so to speak, hew to the to the squares. Um, so he, when I'm prepping, uh, what I do is if I need to use a map for a particular thing or if I have a map for a particular thing I try to make that map work as close to what the situation the PCs are actually in as possible so if I have a map of say a graveyard and a ruined building because I have a ton of old Wizards of the Coast maps from 4th edition and from 3rd edition and from a bunch of different products um, that so that I don't have to draw on like a wet erase a grid but if I'm going to use one of those I never use one if it has a bunch of elements that really aren't there or that don't have a bunch of elements that really are there. Because as Mike said about the minis or the tokens, it's really distracting to say, oh, well, uh, I know there's only two Bone Devil minis there, but there's actually three. Or, oh, I know that 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 looks like two zombies and a skeleton, but they're all actually skeletons, you know. Or, oh, I see on the map there's, you know, three bookcases. Those aren't really there. That's really distracting to players who are very visually oriented and who are really using that map to help them get into the game versus you know being a theater of the mind type of thing Mm -hmm. so uh, I try to make sure that if I'm going to have a an encounter let's say in a library or in uh, a cavern I try to choose a map that actually fits exactly what I'm looking for and then I will mold the encounter toward that even more so that it matches exactly just because I do have a couple of players who really enjoy the map aspect of the game, and they really want it to work, they don't want it to be a distraction or, or something that looks, you know, kind of half-assed, right? Um, so, I you have to kind of be willing to be flexible with what what you were envisioning and what's possible with theater of the mind versus what's possible with the map that you have on the table. Um, and that's also actually one reason why the basic flip mat or you know the vinyl rollout. Uh, you know, mats that you can mm-hmm. draw on and whatnot are really helpful, and like gaming paper, things like that are really helpful um, because you can draw everything that's on there. But they tend to be a monotone color, or they tend to not have uh, as much detail. Now, some of the flip mats have actual like buildings and whatnot on them, but mm-hmm. I'm just talking about the basic ones that are mm-hmm. blank and you draw on it. It's it's not quite as as nice. It's much more utilitarian. Although um, there are some I, people, there are some people that draw those maps uh, oh, sure. with, with yeah. tons of detail that yeah. are just really good at it that I'm totally jealous yeah. of. Yeah, I'm I'm just not that artistic, yeah. so I, I I can't do that. So I use lots of dungeon tiles, lots of flip math, but you have to be prepared to use those. You have to have set it out beforehand. It takes a lot of prep time. Um, 
for me at least, because I want to make it perfect. Because if I'm going to bother to use that stuff, I'm going to bother to use it. You know what I mean? I, mm. I try not to, to sort of halfway do it. Um, and that's actually my advice, that if you if you think you want to do, like, you want to go 30% maps, then do the maps really, really well, mm-hmm. it, as much as possible. Very good, very good. All right, so so we're run, running into the, the end of our conversation. It sounds like we're wrapping things up. Any Anybody have a last thought they want to throw in before we call the end of the episode? Yes. <laughs> Mike Shea, of I course, has something to say. I always have a thought. Uh, <laughs> use, use all of these. There is just like we don't have to hate one system and we can or just love one system. All of these are tools that we can keep in our toolbox and use when the situation is right. Very good. I just wanted to say real quick about um, playing online, like whether you're using Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or, or what have you. Uh, I just tend to shy away from maps altogether. It's almost all theater of the mind because online games, it's kind of, it's precious time. Uh, online games are a little bit tougher to keep on track and uh, maps just seem to get in the way. So whenever I roll an online or run an online game, which is more often these days, it's pretty much only a theater of the mind. So is that true even if you're using like a pre-published adventure where you could buy all of the, the map packs and the tokens and everything you need right there? You still would rather go through your other mind? I haven't done that yet, and okay. so I don't know. I'm, I may do uh, the Minds of Fandelver because I did purchase that, uh, and it's my favorite game to run for new people, and I've been doing that a lot lately. So I may try that, but uh, every other time that I've tried to implement maps, the the setup time and, and the implementation yeah. and the picking of miniatures, and I, I go through Roll20, so I don't know if other systems are better, but uh, all the fiddly parts that come with trying to get everybody... Uh, working on the map just takes too long. And even just when everything's running smoothly, like the movement and the everything else, uh, it just kind of gets in the way. I want my online games to be quick and I want to be able to narrate them. And that's really when people are more willing to just kind of listen to me talk about what the combat is like than, um, you know, to be able to move a miniature in real life. I don't know if VR will change that someday. Um, I know that, that we're kind of heading in that direction, but uh, there you go. I, uh, I, I've done both, actually. I've run some um, Dungeon Crawl Classics games on Roll20 and not used a map uh, because you don't need to. It's not expected in that system at all. Um, and I've actually run um, lots of 4th and 5th edition games on Roll20. And uh, it has the same issue as, as what I was saying before, that uh, if you are going to use the map, you need to set it up. And, and it's even more, as Ishmael said, it's even more prep heavy because you have to now set up the tokens and assign them to people and set lighting and do all kinds of different things to make sure that it actually turns out to have the impact that you want it to have. And it takes a lot of time to do that. The more that I've done it, the, the faster I get at those sorts of things. But it only takes a hiatus of a month and a half to lose that speed again, and then you got to work back up to it. Mm-hmm. Um and because it's sort of a dynamic thing, it, it takes a lot of bandwidth during the game. And so if anybody has a weak internet connection, forget it. You're all out. You might as well just oh, yeah. not use a map. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so in that case, it depends on technology a lot more than a face-to-face game would. Right. And, and I think that's, that's worthy of a whole topic. Like, we'll have to get James to come mm-hmm. on and talk about Roll20 and uh, James Intercasso from, from Tabletop Babble and the Don't Split the Podcast Network, formerly of the Roundtable. Uh, we'll have to get him on and some other folks on at some point to talk about virtual tabletops and all, all those things. Because uh, uh, I think that's, that's a topic worthy of conversation at some point. Mm-hmm. So. All right, then. It sounds like that's the end. Everybody's got, uh, got last thoughts out of the way we're gonna go ahead and call that the end of this episode we'd like to say thank you to our guests uh mike shay where can people find you slyflourish.com and twitter at twitter.com slash slyflourish sam well you can find me at uh on twitter at dm samuel or you can find me on rpg musings or uh you know you can find me right here on the tome show I love how you say that. <laughs> Ishmael? Uh, yeah, so I can be found most easily on Twitter as Elvin Wizard King, um, which is way easier to spell than uh, Laura Thorne or my name of Ishmael. Uh, and also any 5th edition products uh, that Fat Goblin Games has created probably have my hand in there somewhere. Awesome. 
And we'd also say, like to say thank you to all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild, or for being a patron of the show at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. And if you want to get a hold of us, Tracy, me, or anybody else here, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. That goes to me, and then I will feel... Uh, I will distribute that to wherever it needs to go. Uh, you can also call the, the voicemail at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Uh, you can reach out to Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Darkmagic. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Uh, and you can reach out to the show at, at The Tome Show, all on Twitter. Uh, that is... Tracy's line. <laughs> Episode 293, where we created an elaborate dungeon out of intricate and expensive models. Just have the party hang out in the tavern all day. In this episode of... You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't think we fancy. Let me teach you about class. Priest, fighter, rogue, catch a kick your ass. You don't think we street? Look at this table full of ice. You don't think we hard? Just touch my dice. You don't think we can get it at the birds and the bees? I'm a pallet in the suits, but a thief in the shoes. My character shoots 'cause they full of the brim with maxed out stats. He think he in charge, we don't worry about him Simple when he has to get us, be like Jack the Swim Master player, traitor, master creator Look at me, master NPC generator Just cause she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later I don't care if over there your character is dying Cause it's just like baseball, there's no crying You wanna join in, now you start realizing We're the cool, cool nerds, call me Neil deGrasse Tyson D to the R to the A, gun S, D and D the dungeon master sets up a scenario, then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together, there's no winning, yo, we could play forever. Stay right there, let me answer your questions, I'll clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions, I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D&D, you don't dress up to play D&D, you don't dress up to play D&D, unless you want to. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me. I'm also wrong.